I think we have this term seen at court, which has been extraordinarily resistant to really common sense calls that the court needs to deal with ethics issues seriously. And I think that's something people need to continue to make a lot of noise about. Hello and welcome to School Me, the National Education Association's podcast dedicated to helping educators thrive at every stage of their careers. I'm your host, Natika Samuels. The U.S. Supreme Court makes decisions each year that can radically change the way we live our lives and do our jobs. From free speech rights to religious freedom, equal access to education, and the delicate balance between privacy and safety, the legal intricacies and real-world implications of Supreme Court rulings cannot be understated. Alice O'Brien, NEA's general counsel, returns to the show today to discuss the recent Supreme Court decisions that have had major effects on our country and what they mean specifically for educators and students. Welcome back to the show, Alice. Thanks, Natika. So good to be here. So let's get started because the U.S. judicial system is pretty complex, and I want to start with some basics. So what is the purpose of the Supreme Court in the United States? So the Supreme Court is the highest court in the country, and it is the ultimate decision maker about what our federal constitution means and what our federal statutes mean. It's by design the least representative branch of government, right? We all remember the three branches of government and the least accountable branch of government. Currently, there are nine justices on the Supreme Court, but that number has varied over the history of the court. But they are lifetime appointees and they are lifetime appointees that are chosen by the president and confirmed by the Senate right? And the Senate is the least representative legislative branch, also by constitutional design, because there are two senators for every state, which means that in current United States real politic talk, it means that white rural interests are vastly overrepresented in the U.S. Senate. And so what that means for our current court is that our current court is very much out of step with sort of the democratic populist view in general. And can you break down how a case makes it all the way to the Supreme Court? Obviously, every case is not eligible, and even those who might be eligible don't make it. So what makes a case worthy of the Supreme Court hearing? So the Supreme Court sits at the top of the federal judicial system, and there are three levels of the federal judicial system. There are trial courts, or people call them district courts throughout the country, and then there are court of appeals, and then there's the Supreme Court itself. And you can file a case in district court pretty much as of right. And so that's where most of the litigation happens when you're thinking about trials and juries that all happens in district court. Then whoever loses in district court generally can appeal the case up to the court of appeals, and those are regional courts And they basically review what the district court has done and they can correct errors of law or fact under different standards of review. And they can also change the law. And when a court of appeal makes a decision of law, their decision about what the law is governs in that entire court of appeals region. And review before the court of appeals is generally by right to, you know, if you lose, you generally have the right to have another panel of judges take a look at your case and make a second determination on it. But review before the Supreme Court itself is discretionary. It's by a writ of certiorari. People will sometimes call it a petition for cert. And so people petition 
thousands of cases up to the Supreme Court every year. Well over 10,000 cases are subjects of cert petitions to the Supreme Court every year. And the Supreme Court accepts about 70 of those cases and actually decides them. So how do they decide which ones they accept? Well, as we were saying earlier, justices on the Supreme Court are lifetime appointees and they all have views about where the law should go. And so they are looking at those cases to determine, is this a good vehicle for where I want to move the law? Is this a good way for me to move the law in a direction that I find more conducive to sort of my view of how the legal system should work over the long term. There are rules about what kinds of cases they consider for cert, but obviously they don't take them all. If courts of appeals there are 11 courts of appeals and the D.C. Circuit. If the courts of appeals rulings about a particular statute are in conflict, and so the law is very different in different places in the country, so the Ninth Circuit law, which basically governs all the states on the West Coast, is very different than the Fourth Circuit law, which governs Virginia and the Mid-Atlantic area, the Supreme Court can take the case in order to settle the law for the entire country. In other circumstances, though, they make a decision decision that it's better to have the courts of appeals sort of sort out what they think of a complicated issue of law. And then the Supreme Court will wait until enough circuits have had a chance to sort of mull it over and dig into the issue. And then they will take a case and decide it. That's a lot to consider. That's a lot. And you've already mentioned that the Supreme Court is not very representative. So do the American people have any control or influence over the court? Yes. The American people have a lot of control and influence over the court in the form of who they elect for president and who they put in the U.S. Senate, right? Those are the gatekeepers to the court. Certainly our current court was created by the election of President Trump in 2016. When he was elected, he was able to fill one seat that Speaker McConnell had refused to fill under President Obama. And then President Trump was able to fill two more seats. And that created the hyper-conservative Supreme Court that we now have. And this upcoming presidential election, too, is a critical one that will determine who are the next justices on the Supreme Court. Most presidents appoint one or two justices to the court. President Trump is unusual in that he got to appoint three. And frankly, he got to appoint three because the Republicans unlawfully blocked President Obama from appointing his chosen nominee on the court. And if President Obama had been able to seat Merrick Garland on the court, you know, we would not have the decisions that we have today and we've had for the last two years coming out of the court that are far to the right and far out of step with where the American public thinks rights should be in this country. And you mentioned that the Supreme Court justice appointments are lifetime appointments. And you also mentioned that there are nine people now, but there have been varying numbers of people in the past. So let's say that a Democratic president wins the next election. Would they be able to appoint more justices or would justices have to leave, retire? What are the options for the next, I guess, 10 years in theory? The number of justices on the court is set by statute. If you wanted to change the number of justices on the court, you would probably need to pass a statute through the House and the Senate and have it signed by the president. Certainly the president could push that through, but he would need political support in both houses of the legislature to do that. 
And the number of justices on the court has changed several times over the first hundred years of this country. It varied between, I think, six and upwards of 10. And then it finally settled around nine in the middle of the 19th century and has been at nine ever since. But there's no magic to the number nine. And that could certainly be changed. But the change would be by statute. The president couldn't just do it. The other thing that likely could be done by statute is to change what courts the judges sit on. There has been some talk about the Supreme Court has become so politicized that it would make sense to tell justices, you have a lifetime appointment to serve in the federal judiciary, but not necessarily on the Supreme Court. And so the idea would be, okay, you serve, and I'm just going to pull a number out of my head because this is a number that is talked about 18 years. You serve 18 years on the Supreme Court, and then you serve nine years riding circuit on one of the Court of Appeals. And then perhaps you come back to the Supreme Supreme Court. So that's something that people have talked about as a way of changing the composition of the Supreme Court. And of course, life happens all the time, right? People do step down from the Supreme Court because of illness, because of death, unfortunately, or because they just decide, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to spend the rest of my life doing this. And so vacancies do regularly occur on the court that need to be filled. So I guess those are the three ways. Statute, different kinds of statutory remedies, or different approaches to filling vacancies that come up on the court. Let's start getting into a bit more about education and the Supreme Court specifically. When a lot of people think about the Supreme Court and education, I think they think of Brown versus Board. What, in your opinion, are some of the most important decisions that have been made by the Supreme Court that affect education before 2023? Well, Brown is a seismic case. Everybody understands that Brown just fundamentally changed this country forever because it struck down separate but very unequal schools in this country and created the principle of not just equal opportunity in schooling and the need to take affirmative steps to provide equal educational opportunity for students, but the understanding that separate but unequal generally was not tenable or constitutional. And so that understanding just you know, remade American society and greatly advanced racial equality in many, many ways and continues to do so to this day. I think the conservatives on the court, particularly the far right conservatives on the court, have a long range project to limit the impact of Brown. They would very much like to remake Brown from a decision that stands for the proposition that equal educational opportunity must be provided even if it requires affirmative actions in order to remedy past acts of discrimination and eliminate the vestiges of discrimination to a decision which means government should just be entirely colorblind, race-blind in all of its decision-making. And you see that in particular from the Chief Justice Roberts. Chief Justice Roberts said in the Seattle Schools case back in 2007, the way to get beyond race is to stop talking about race. And he said again in the affirmative action case, sort of the same line that we're just going to declare from the Supreme Court that race doesn't matter and somehow that's going to make it so. And obviously the dissent 
And many, many people in the public and NEA believe that's not the case, right? You can't just declare that race no longer matters by legal fiat. It does matter. It matters in multiple ways. And the only way in which we can truly advance racial equality in this country is to recognize that it matters and to address the resulting inequities. I guess the other bookend to Brown is, of course, the Rodriguez case, right, which comes out of Texas. And the question was whether or not the U.S. Constitution guarantees a right to education as sort of implicit in the right to citizenship. And there are lots of state constitutions that have been interpreted and applied to guarantee a right to education in them. But in Rodriguez, the Supreme Court refused to find such a right under the federal constitution. And by its refusing to do so, this is the 50th year after the Rodriguez decision, I believe. By its refusing to do so, what it did is it kind of pushed to the states most of the cards about what kind of educational opportunity will be provided to students in this country. So it's not so much a federal issue, it's a state-by-state -state issue with widely differing results for students and widely differing opportunities for students. And another case that is relatively recent and had an effect on the labor sector is the 2018 Janus versus American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees that dealt with public sector unions. So how has this ruling impacted our union and other educator unions, and definitely unions everywhere, but to keep it more specific, NEA, AFT, all of the yeah, educator unions that we follow and support? So Janus is a case that interpreted the First Amendment to basically include a right to work law for public sector employees across the country. And so what does that mean? In the public sector, in states that had collective bargaining prior to Janus, the state could make a decision. Collective bargaining is so important that we think the union, when it's fulfilling its job to be the exclusive representative of employees in the unit, can charge everyone in the unit for the fair cost of that representation. And those charges were called agency fees. The case before the court in Janus was an individual who was not a member objected to paying that fee and said they had a First Amendment right not to pay that fee. And the court agreed and said the First Amendment bars agency fees. And so what is the consequence of that decision? It means, number one, you can't charge agency fees anymore and can't since 2018. Public sector unions need to spend more time on organizing and signing up their members and can't count on the fact that they can charge for their services at the end of the day without everyone voluntarily agreeing, oh, this is worthwhile, I'm going to pay for it. But the silver lining of Janice has been that we have done exactly that. So NEA and our affiliates in collective bargaining states have redoubled efforts to organize and to have those one-on-one -on -one conversations to sign people up. And those efforts have been successful. And I think you can see that in NEA's membership numbers, which have, you know, held pretty firm after Janus, notwithstanding the fact that it did fundamentally change sort of the legal framework for public sector collective bargaining in the country. Now, I'd like to start talking a little bit more recently about 2022 slash three, which I think has been a really big 
news cycle for the Supreme Court. I feel like I hear people talking about it even more outside of DC or political circles because some of the cases have been really big and shocking. Before we get into the actual cases, I wanted to talk about a term that I've been hearing a lot about this round, which is standing. Can you talk to me about what standing is and why that's so important in some of the cases this year? Standing is the notion that a person in order to bring a case actually has to be injured in a way that a court can redress. And it's supposed to be a recognition that courts are the least representative and least accountable branch of government. And so they should really confine their decision making to actual cases and controversies, meaning, you know, someone did something to me that this court can redress. And so that is within the competence of the federal courts to redress. And that notion is all wrapped into the notion of standing. Does this particular plaintiff have standing or don't they have standing to bring a case before the court? And I think the case that has really raised lots of eyebrows and concerns this term is the 303 creative case because that case concerned a public accommodations law in Colorado. And those laws are laws that have been around for a very long time and they just require businesses that are open to the public to serve all comers without discrimination. And those laws go back decades. Many of them predate the civil rights movement. They do two different things. One, they kind of protect the free market, right? They make sure that if businesses are open to the public, they actually have to be open to the public. And two, they protect the dignity of individual consumers by saying that businesses can't post a sign on their doors saying, sorry, we don't serve women, or sorry, we don't serve LGBTQ people. But in 303 Creative, a Christian website designer was interested in designing wedding websites. And she was worried, she said, that if she did so, she couldn't restrict her services to cis couples. She would have to serve same-sex couples too. And she said she had a religious objection to serving same-sex couples. And she did not want to use her website design services to serve same-sex couples. So she went to court. Now, most people would say she can't go to court until the state of Colorado comes to her and says, hey, if you're going to offer those wedding websites, you have to serve all comers. And why are you restricting your services only to heterosexual couples? But she didn't wait. She just went to court and said she was worried. And the case went up all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court decided the case, even though there is a very good argument to be made that she did not have standing to bring the case. And so the case should have never been decided. And I think it is an example of a case in which an ideological group, the Alliance Defending Freedom, which has been pegged as a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center, went and brought the case. They found a plaintiff to bring a case and they sort of suggested to the court that there was something there which wasn't really there because the wedding website designer, in fact, wasn't designing wedding websites. And so the court shouldn't have been deciding it. It seems pretty shocking to me that a case that is about something that didn't happen was allowed to happen. Is there any reversal of that? Like maybe the standing doesn't exist. Have Supreme Court cases ever been reversed based on something like this? Or are they the final say and there's just no going back? 
So the Supreme Court usually is the final say, right? You don't really come back from a Supreme Court decision. You might go a different direction and you might find your way all the way up around the barn again. But the Supreme Court is the final arbiter of the law. So Congress could pass a law and restrict in some way the cases that the Supreme Court could review. I think that's pretty unlikely to occur. And of course, the president and the Senate in the judicial selection and confirmation process can press those issues and try to ascertain if they're getting judges and justices who will follow the law or really have an ideological agenda that they're going to pursue if they think they have the votes to pursue it. I think there's a really good case to be made in the case of 303 Creative that the six justices on the court who really want to move the law, they understand they have a limited window potentially of doing this and they intend to do it. And I think we should all be on notice right after the Dobbs decision and the guns decision last year and the affirmative action decision this year and the student debt decision and 303 creative, right? They are not messing around. This is not the court we grew up with. They intend to really fundamentally change the law in this country and they are going to go ahead and do it. And if that means that they are granting cert and deciding cases based on a would-be wedding designer's wishes, so be it. They don't care. So the question is, how much do all of us care in order to sort of make this a real issue in the presidential campaign and make this a real issue in our political conversation about the need for the court to be more accountable and to be more reflective of the norms of our country. Thanks for listening to School Me, and a quick thank you to all of the NEA members listening. If you're not an NEA member yet, visit nea.org slash whyjoin to learn more about member benefits. We do have more cases to talk about because I'm sure that the 303 Creative case does affect our membership or educators if they have any sort of reason to be excluded from public services. So there's that, but there's also things that affect the education system or the way that we access education as well, like the student loans case that was recently decided. So can you talk a little bit about changes to the student loan landscape? Sure. And the student loan case is also an example of the standard issue. They're Republican attorney generals who were opposed to President Biden's student loan forgiveness program under which student loan holders could get up to $20,000 of their debt forgiven if they met certain conditions was challenged as being in excess in violation of the Secretary of Education's statutory authority under the HEROES Act. And the Republican AGs, they just opposed student loan forgiveness. They thought it was politically a bad idea. But Usually political disputes are not sorted out in court. You yourself have to have an actual injury that can be redressed by the court. But these Republican AGs did not have an actual injury. And the court nevertheless reached the merits of the student loan decision on the theory that the Missouri Higher Education Authority, Mohila, was somehow injured in the case, even though they actually were not a party in the case, and therefore the case could proceed. And what the court held in the student loan cases, this is the name of the case is Nebraska versus Biden, the court struck down President Biden's student loan forgiveness program in its entirety and said that the statutory language under the HEROES Act that gives the Secretary of Education authority to waive or modify 
any loan condition under the program was not sufficient to give the Secretary of Education authority to waive all of those loans en masse. And the court sort of used as a tiebreaker this notion, which the court has sort of fanned into life over the last couple of years, that where the Supreme Court thinks an issue is really important, really politically important, and it affects lots and lots of people and has, you know, significant economic impacts, that the court will look more closely at the statutory framework. They call it the major questions doctrine, and it sort of puts a thumb on the scale against finding statutory authorization for a program that the Supreme Court views as very important. And since the Supreme Court is hyper-conservative, what that means is that programs that really advance progressive interests, the student debt relief case, would have forgiven millions of people's loans and would have done a great deal to not eliminate but narrow the racial wealth gap in this country because the people with the most loans are disproportionately Black and Latin and AAPI and indigenous people. And so that debt relief disproportionately would have benefited those communities and would have benefited, you know, future generations in those communities too by eliminating the debt load that otherwise makes it impossible to buy a house, impossible to go to higher education, impossible to support your children in going to expensive additional educational opportunities. And so the court's struck it down in an exercise of its political power. Well, we could make education free and then that would be great too. <laughs> we could, <laughs> Not maybe we today. can make it a fundamental right. Let's make it a fundamental right. And then it has to be free to everybody. Right. Right. Pay through higher ed. Yeah. So while we wait for that to happen, I guess <laughs> we will have to figure out other ways. And I know that the Biden administration has come out with you know other plans for providing relief that we won't get into today. I want to get into what I think is the biggest education-related case that's on people's minds, which is affirmative action. So I want to give you plenty of time to discuss the latest decision on affirmative action and how that is going to affect people going forward and what the legacy of affirmative action has been and how it has changed sort of the face of higher education in particular. Yeah, so the affirmative action case, you know, I think it's the opposite side of the coin of the student loan case, right? These are both cases about access and opportunity to education in our country. And both of them reflect the court just slamming the door on access and opportunity, particularly for BIPOC students, but more generally for, you know, students who just don't have the economic means to go to the most selective colleges in the country. So there were two different affirmative action cases. They were combined. One was against Harvard and one was against the University of North Carolina. And the challenge was brought by a conservative advocate, Blum, who has this organization called Students for Fair Admissions that has had a long-term project to strike down affirmative action programs. And so they challenged the higher education admissions processes at both Harvard and UNC both of which it's important for people to understand, used race as a very, 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 very small, tiny, tiny factor in a subset of decisions about what students were admitted to those elite institutions and could pursue their studies in those elite institutions. 
And it has been the law in this country for 45 years that higher education institutions could do exactly that. And they could do it because the courts have recognized that diversity in college student bodies serves compelling government interests because we want student bodies, you know, writ large to be broadly diverse in every respect. We expect that students go to colleges and universities and we want them to be exposed to people of different races, different backgrounds, different every perspective so that they have a robust understanding of our multiracial democracy when they get out and can be full participants in society when they get out. And so that's been the settled understanding for 45 years. The lower courts in both the UNC and the Harvard case, there were trials about how they were doing their higher education admissions decisions. The lower courts found that they had used race in an appropriately narrowly ta tailored way to advance that compelling government interest. And both cases go up to the Supreme Court. Justice Roberts strikes both higher education admissions decisions down without a lot of detail about exactly how those programs work or why the lower courts got it wrong in the justice's view, and also without explicitly overruling the prior precedents, allowing the use of race in higher education. Instead, what the court does, and this is a little bit of a catch-22, the court has always said you can use race as one factor among many to build a broadly diverse class, but you can't use race in a quantifiable way and you can't use it in a way where you can identify that this candidate clearly got in because of race and this candidate did it. And so higher education admissions officers have very complex ways in order to sort their admissions applications and decide in what circumstances and when and how much they will even consider race. And the court basically said, your interest in having diversity in the student body, you can't quantify it in any way. You can't quantify the need to consider race in that in any way, and therefore you lose. That's a legal ruling. And the court says, you know, the way to get beyond race is to not consider race anymore. This is Justice Roberts's long-term project to make Brown into like the narrowest decision possible and to make Brown sort of an excuse for not talking about race instead of an affirmative lever for advancing racial equity in education and generally. So what's the impact of that decision? Number one, we know that it will result at the higher education level in less diversity in colleges and higher education institutions because we have states that have outlawed affirmative action. California did several years ago. Michigan did several years ago, and the results in both those states has been a decreased number of BIPOC students in institutions of higher education. And so obviously that means that there is less access to educational opportunity, and it also means that there is less access to equal opportunity, right? Because the road to opportunity in our country goes through those elite institutions of higher education. People who go to the Harvards and UNCs of the world are the people who become the doctors and lawyers and business leaders and Fortune 500 CEOs. That's the path to success in this country. And it changes not just the composition of those classes, but it changes the composition of the country's leadership 
over time. Now, there's lots of effort on the conservative side to push the decision in the higher education affirmative action context into other contexts, into the employment context, for example. But those are different. Those are cases that are decided under different legal standards. And so they'll certainly be fought out, but it doesn't follow automatically from the decisions in the Harvard and UNC case. What are the prospects for affirmative action more generally in this country? Are there any other cases that were decided in this term that you think have a significant effect on educators and students? So there were cases in which the court was going to do something really catastrophic and it stopped short of doing something really catastrophic. So people should be aware of those cases just because they are sort of flashing yellow lights about where the court may go in future cases. In the voting rights case out of Alabama, the court did not strike down Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which was of great concern and people were very worried about it. But in his concurring opinion, Justice Kavanaugh did suggest that there was an argument that could have been made against Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which he would be open to entertaining in a future case. And that's a concern because he was the fifth vote in the case. In the Glacier Northwest case, which is a labor case, the court went out of its way to kind of involve itself in a private sector labor dispute and to hold that a labor strike, a private sector labor strike was unprotected and therefore the union could be subject to damages to the employer's product that resulted from the strike, even though the National Labor Relations Board general counsel had a different view. And the case itself didn't really make new law, but the fact that the Supreme Court took upon itself to ignore what the National Labor Relations Board was doing and to arrogate to itself the decision about whether particular strike activity is protected and to rule in a way that you know, will chill private sector strike activity going forward certainly is another warning sign that this court is not respecting the usual bounds and limitations on its authority and is willing to reach out and take things that otherwise would properly be decided by a competent expert administrative agency like the National Labor Relations Board. There are essentially no checks on the Supreme Court, right? No one is above them in terms of these decisions to say, hey, that case didn't have standing. So aside from just assigning or appointing rather new justices when that becomes available, there's nothing that can be done about a Supreme Court case ruling once it's decided, right? Nothing that can be done except for, you know, plan the next 20 year campaign in order to get that particular Supreme Court decision overruled, elect a president who will put justices on the court who are more responsive to the general public's interest and more in the mainstream of legal thought. I think we have this term seen not just the second year of the Trump court, but we've also seen a court which has been extraordinarily resistant to really common sense calls that the court needs to deal with ethics issues seriously. You know, over the course of the last several months, we've 
seen a drumbeat of investigative journalist stories about the court, which have made clear that for decades, uh, conservative interests have wined and dined the justices in order to build alignment with them and to influence their worldviews. And that that effort has been incredibly effective in many respects. And I think we've only seen sort of the tip of the iceberg at this point. But the Supreme Court has no public ethics code. There is no transparency as to what things they consider an ethics violation. And it has been alarming to hear the different justices claim that they can receive gifts and trips on private jets that, you know, exceed hundreds of thousands of dollars over many years and that those do not influence their conduct. I mean, most NEA members at schools, at the K through 12 school level, have basic conflict of interest requirements that they must abide with or risk their employment. And those requirements are not that they have to recuse themselves from grading a student if they get a half million dollars from a parent. They're like, if you get more than $50 in gifts from a parent, that is prohibited by the school district. And if you accept it, you can be terminated. And those kinds of ethical requirements for public servants are commonplace. People talk about them in terms of the requirements on Congress and the requirements on the lower courts, but they apply to all the educators in the school system as well. And how can the Supreme Court, which is fundamentally changing our society as we know it, claim to hold itself apart and not be accountable to those requirements is untenable. And I think something that people need to continue to make a lot of noise about. Well, I will not hold my breath, but I will cross my fingers for court reform in the near future. (laughs) So what can NEA members do if they don't support the entire sort of Supreme Court arrangement, more specifically a case? What are some of our options, maybe at the state or local level, or options that are a little less long reaching than the 20 year political plan? Well, I think the immediate political plan is to make sure that Biden is reelected to president. Because if we have another Trump presidency, the court, which is currently significantly off the rails in many respects, is going to go completely off the rails altogether. These decisions that have come down, which have created lots of grits for the litigation mill, like 303 Creative, are going to just fuel tremendous harm across the country because the lower court judges that are appointed by the president enforce those decisions. They really are gonna be the decision makers at the end of the day about how broad the affirmative action ruling is, for example, or how broad the 303 creative First Amendment loophole in public accommodations laws are. And the president and senators decide who sits on those lower courts. And so it's incredibly important. Those lower court nominees, so people don't pay attention to them, they are the people who decide almost all the cases that are brought in this country. So the immediate ask is to support President Biden, but also call on your senators to support and move forward lower court nominees. Well, that is an excellent explanation of the importance of midterm elections and the importance of all elections and registering and getting out to vote and making sure that your friends and family go and get their votes in too. So thank you so much for providing this update. I hope that one day I will have you on the podcast for good news. 
news. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to come back with some good news. (laughs) Yes. I think it's really helpful for everybody to understand what's at stake and get our marching orders for the next election. Me too. Thanks so much for doing this. We will talk about good news. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of School Me. And take a minute to rate the show and leave a review. It really helps us out and it makes it easier for more educators to find us. For more tips to help you bring the best to your students, text POD, that's P-O-D, to 48744.